But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. We've been in a series called Promises and Power, focusing on Israel, capturing the promised land, guided by their new leader, Joshua. This is our final message in the series, and it's called Commitment. Today, you'll see how Joshua encourages and challenges all of Israel to worship and serve only God. Here's Senior Pastor Perry Ducker. Thank you for coming out today in Jesus' name, and some of you woke up on time. It's a tough day, isn't it? Cold, wet, early, and wives gone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how many of you men got your kids here without wives in the house? Let me see. Oh, not that many, but you deserve it. <laughs> That's right. Pay attention, dads. (laughs) It's not as easy as it looks, is it? This morning we conclude our series, Promises and Power. And of course we've learned that God empowers His promises. He doesn't always empower our plans. Sometimes He does. But we can be sure that He will empower those promises that He makes, those plans He lays out. The title to today's message is Commitment. If you take out your outline, your program, you'll see that the theme verse, just part of a verse, verse 15 from Joshua 24 is, Choose today whom you will serve. Now we're coming to the end of Joshua's life and uh, the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua was concerned that Israel, the people of Israel, would lapse into idolatry because of the influence of the Canaanites who remained in the land. And if they lapsed into idolatry, they could lose their promised land. God would remove them. After challenging Israel's leaders, you saw that in chapter 23 last week, Joshua called for an assembly of all the people. He wanted to have a ceremony of covenant renewal at a location of great significance. So we'll be in Joshua chapter 24. In this Bible available here, it is page 199. Chapter 24, verse 1. Then Joshua summoned all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, including their elders, leaders, judges, and officers. So they came and presented themselves to whom? How often do we think that we're presenting ourselves to God? And yet, it wasn't Joshua that was most important. It was that they were in God's presence and God who was listening. Of course, he does to us at all times. Now, what happened at Shechem? Well, Shechem was the place where God first promised land to Abram and actually to his descendants in Genesis 12. But it was also the place where years later, Jacob built an altar to the God of Israel, declared him to be the God of Israel, Yahweh. 
in Genesis 33, and he instructed his family to get rid of all of their idols in Genesis 35. So this place represented Israel's relationship with God. Several significant things had happened between God and their ancestors. Now Joshua used several arguments to encourage the people to commit themselves wholeheartedly to their God after he was gone. He, he knows he's, he's pretty old. He knows he's at the end of his ministry, even his life. So this accounts for his, his farewell address. I feel like that sometimes too. <laughs> so he reminded the people of God's goodness and his grace. What, what is grace? Unmerited favor is a great definition, but have you weighed that meaning on yourself? Sometimes we learn things without really considering them, without concentrating on what they mean. But it is favor or blessing that's undeserved in any way and unmerited. So Joshua is encouraging commitment to God, and he's encouraging it by pointing out first the results of God's grace on their lives, which first included the call to faith. Verse 2, Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River in the area of Iraq in the Middle East. And they worshipped other gods. They lived in a town or near a town called Ur in an area that was dominated by Chaldeans. And they worshipped other gods. Now, did God call Abram because of his faith? What do you think? No, he didn't have any faith. He was an idol worshiper. Did he call Abram because he was a a good, upright man? No, no evidence of that. Abram was an unbeliever who, like other Chaldeans, worshipped Many gods. You know, it may have been not as strange. We see that strange tale with Abram taking Isaac and laying him on the altar. But that may have actually been what Abram had been accustomed to in the worship of gods. Because they were engaged in immorality. They were engaged in sacrifice, even human sacrifice. And these Chaldeans worshipped many gods. But supreme upon them, among them, was a god named Nana. So you grandmas who are called Nana, you might think of changing that because that was the name of the moon god. By the way, he was a man, not a woman. And he was the source of fertility for crops and herds and families. Abraham did not seek God. God sought Abraham. And God sought Abraham because of his own grace and his love. Verse 3. 
But I took your ancestor Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him into the land of Canaan. You see that in Genesis 11 and 12. I gave him many descendants through his son Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir. While Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. Why did they go to Egypt? For food, yeah, to survive the the famine. So Jacob, what was Jacob's name changed to? Israel, yes. Jacob, who became Israel, was actually the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it wasn't that he had 12 sons here. He had, it was named actually for his 10 sons and two grandsons. There's not listed a tribe of Joseph. But Joseph was in charge in Egypt. They didn't know that, but it enabled Israel to survive. Abraham left his home, Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith. And he went to a land that was promised to him by faith. Now, what does that mean? Faith is relying on something God says. You see, Abraham never received the land. Abraham always lived in tents, and he didn't inherit the promised land in his lifetime. And neither did his his descendants, Isaac or Jacob. Neither one did. But Abraham believed God's promise. And God considered his belief as righteousness. Because of faith. That's a quote from Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2. But his faith is not any different than ours. You know, in in American church, we have equated faith with doing some things. You know, whether you walk an aisle or raise your hand, you're baptized. All those things are important. But when you boil it down, faith is no more than believing God. You have some promises from God, no less than Abraham, that his son died for your sins in your place. You weren't there. That's a lot to believe, isn't it? That because of that trust in that death of his son, who you had no control over, he has removed your sins He has adopted you into his family. Now, you may have an experience of that because you received the Spirit of God within you. But there's a place for you in eternity. Again, by faith. We trust what we've been told. We are utterly dependent on what we've been told, on the promises of God. That's the essence of faith. Relying on God. It's nothing more. And so you can see how it's not really about you as much as it's about God. God told you something and you are dependent on it. Like Abraham, we were invited into relationship with God. He made these same promises. Not because we were good. Not because we did anything to deserve it, 
but because of God's goodness and God's love. So here's a question for you. Have you answered God's call to faith? Have you responded by trusting him so that he has reckoned you righteous? God determined you were righteous because you believed. That's all it boils down to. You said it must be more. No. That's the whole of faith. Now you get to act on that by living in the way he directs. By journeying where he points out. So are you showing your faith by the way you live? Another result of God's grace is conversion to freedom. Now, Egypt was saved from starvation because of Joseph. And so was Israel. Israel came down and they benefited from the fact that Joseph was already there, but he was there first to preserve Egypt. And then his own relatives benefited as well. But long after, Jesus, after Joseph's death, in fact, the scripture says after they had forgotten who he was, forgotten his name, Egyptian rulers became very threatened by the Jews. The Jews had become so prosperous, they were given a fertile land called Goshen, and, and they just expanded, expanded, expanded. And so the Egyptians were nervous. And they said, we've got to get these people under control. So they enslaved them. You can see that in Exodus 3. There's a lot of telling in Psalm 105. It tells the story. And then at verse 5, so God responded. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. And I brought terrible plagues on Egypt. And afterward... I brought you out as a free people. But when your ancestors arrived at the Red Sea, the Egyptians chased after you with chariots and charioteers. When your ancestors cried out to the Lord, I put darkness between you and the Egyptians. I brought the sea crashing down on your on the Egyptians, drowning them with your very own eyes. You saw what I did. Then you lived in the wilderness for many years. Why did they live in the wilderness? You know it doesn't take 40 years to travel from Egypt to the Jordan River, don't you? Even with that many people, you could certainly make it in two months. So why 40 years? Why? He was trying to get their hearts right, but what, that's a correct interpretation. But what did they actually do that was wrong? Say it again. Now you're ahead of me. You knew I asked that question this morning. A year for each day doing what? Exploring the land. But after they explored the land, they did what? 
Yeah, they did not believe they could defeat the people that lived in the promised land. So that was the lack of faith. But yes, it was 40 years for the 40 days spent exploring. And God killed off everyone in that generation. But the other 10 scouts died of plague then. Through his power, God delivered Israel from slavery. He protected them from the Egyptians. And he provided for them. Sometimes they complained about what they got. They didn't like the manna. He provided water. He provided manna. They complained about water. So he gave them what? What'd they get? Quail. So many that they died of being overstuffed, many of them. So they were given birds to eat. Till that, what does the text say? They came out their noses, they came out their ears, they were stuffed. They were unhappy with the manna. But if they could step back, they would see that God miraculously provided for them. They had water when they needed, they had food to eat. And it lasted for 40 years. Do you realize that you've been released from slavery? From bondage to sin by faith. You see, before we're born again, we really can't resist sin. We don't have the strength. Now you say, well, I've got enough willpower. Well, for a while... Until you're disappointed, you're angry, something happens, and then you find you're right back where you were before. But upon being born again, you're no longer a slave of sin. Did you know that? Do we have any excuses? We say, I couldn't help myself. Could you? Y'all aren't talkative. That cold is getting to you. Can you help yourself? See, we choose not to, don't we? Because the scripture says that whenever we're tempted, there's what? A way out, a way of escape. But we have to choose it. Sometimes we say, oh, I just couldn't help it. I couldn't help myself. But we can if we're believers because we've been set free of slavery to sin, slavery to our own attitudes to our own desires, we now serve what God wants. We're also protected from Satan's attacks. Just as the, the Israel was protected from Egypt, we're protected from Satan's attacks. We put on the full armor of God. We studied that in the fall. So we can resist all of his attacks. And he also provides all of our needs. We don't get all of our wants but we do receive all that we need. So do you ever reflect on the freedom that you have received from God's grace? Freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from need. An additional result of God's grace was the conquest of the promised land. Verse 8. Finally, I brought you into the land of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. 
They fought against you, but I destroyed them before you. I gave you victory over them, and you took possession of their land. Now, just summarize 9 and 10. King Balak of Moab wanted to fight Israel. He was afraid of them. He wanted to defeat them. He asked an evil prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. But God forced Balaam to bless Israel instead. That's in Numbers 22 to 24. Now, verse 11. When you crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. They all gathered against you. <laughs> and they pulled down your house. But, but, but I gave you victory over them. And I sent terror. Who has a different translation than terror? What do you have? Hornets. Now, scholars debate this. Did God really send hornets? Have you ever been stung by a hornet? They're huge. Dig holes in the ground. And it may have been that God actually sent hornets. But that's not what most believe. Most believe that the hornet was a symbol of the sting of fear. Because when you're afraid, see, you, you can't mount an offense. You can hardly defend yourself. But in any event, one way or the other, the terror or the hornet helped them to defeat their enemies. He sent, them, sent it ahead of you to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. That was Sihon and Og. It was not with your swords or bows that brought you victory. And so this terror, if the terror was fear, it resulted from them hearing the story of Israel's conquest. They all heard about the crossing of the Red Sea and defeating, defeating the Egyptians and battles they had fought as they wandered through the wilderness. And so Rahab, you know, she voiced that fear. And she said that everyone in Jericho was afraid as well. And then Gibeon, they came and asked for peace because they also had heard the stories. But except for a temporary defeat at Ai, and what I think was probably an avoidable deception by the Gibeonites, Joshua and the army defeated every enemy in the land. But it wasn't because of their prowess or skill. It was because God fought the battles. Look at your life. Have you attained what you have because of your great skill, intelligence, education? Or is it because God opened the doors, fought the battles, sometimes moved you forward? You know, it's interesting. If you, if you read this story, and many of you are reading in Exodus and also in Joshua, the parts I'm not covering. But, you know, we think, well, why did God just clear them all out? I mean, who thinks that would be smart? Why did they have to fight at all? Why didn't you just drive them out of every city 
throughout the land. A couple of reasons. Exodus 23 tells us that he did not drive them out in a single year. It's probably more like 25 years that Joshua led them in the promised land. Because verse 19 in that, pass, in that chapter says that if he had driven all the people out, all the Canaanites out, that the land would have grown desolate. It would have been full of weeds and briars and the wild animals would have populated those empty cities and they would have been impossible to drive out. And it would have been very dangerous to do so. Furthermore, you know, there's a few, town, a few houses. I, I drive by a house in Malden that someone we knew lived in. And it was always a very neat house, but it, no one's been living in it for years since your grandfather passed. And you can just see the house is hardly livable now because houses don't stay in good repair with no one in them. They get overgrown, they get filled with rodents, animals, snakes, whatever, and they become inhabitable. Well, God knew all this, and so God waited until the population of Israel grew sufficient so that they could then populate and manage these succeeding towns. See, a lot of times what we think is God not caring about us is God showing greater concern and wisdom. Furthermore, how much do you mature spiritually when you have no difficulties? When you have no opposition, when you have no obstacles. God gives us what we need. And sometimes, I might say all the time, what we need is some difficulties, some resistance. God gave Israel this promised land. But he also provided what they would need to live. Verse 13. I gave you land you had not worked on. I gave you towns you did not build. The towns where you're now living, I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food. Though you did not plant them. See, God provided for them generously, bountifully. Anybody know how long it takes a grapevine to produce? Two to three years depending on the grape. What about an olive? You know how long it takes an olive tree to, pr to produce? At least three years. Can be as long as five. So see, these people, if God had driven everybody out of their way, moved them all out, they came in, they had to till the soil, they would have starved. Because it would take a while to grow the crops, prepare the soil, Move the stones. So God gave them places that were already prepared, that were already planted, that were already yielding crops. How many times has God provided for you and you did nothing at all? It just came. See, that's grace. God has graciously given us his promised land as well. 
What promised land are you living in? See, we don't often think of it this way, do we? Many of us think of promised land as being heaven. But you don't inherit heaven until after you die. And yet, you've entered the promised land already. The promised land is being born again. It's having the Spirit of God in you. The Spirit of God is the comforter. The Spirit of God is the counselor. The Spirit of God intercedes for you with God and enables you to communicate with God. The Spirit of God leads you to truth, directs your path. And so we are living in the promised land, blessed by God now. But we're still battling adversaries. And some of us think God is not kind to us, that we still have these adversaries. We still have these difficulties. My goodness, we still have temptations and difficulties. We still have struggles and suffering. And we have physical, emotional, and spiritual problems. But would we grow in dependence of God if all went well? How many of you have grown spiritually when everything in your life was perfect? Finances are good, health is good, mental outlook's good, relationships are good, everything's thriving. And how many of us have grown in very difficult times? Anybody grow in difficult times? You have to grow in difficult times. And you have to cling in difficult times. But do you recognize the promised land that you are living in that God has given you by grace? And what about all the promises that he has fulfilled and continues to fulfill? Commitment to God is also encouraged by rejecting worldly idols. Verse 14. So fear the Lord and serve him. Some of your translations don't say serve. What do they say? Fear, some of them. Others, worship. And you think, well, well, worship is not the same as serve. See, we think of serve as doing some works. And we think of worship as going to church, singing a few songs, listening to a sermon, hoping it doesn't last very long. But the two are really very close because worship truly means that you've committed your entire self. Romans 12 says your body, your whole life to God because of what he has done for you. So worship means God is first. He's primary. He's the first consideration in every instance. We follow him. We use our lives, our energy, our money, our time to serve him. So the two are very close. And so in this passage, fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly with integrity, with faithfulness. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River. He's talking about Abraham. And in Egypt when they were slaves. Serve the Lord alone. See, some of these people were were worshiping idols secretly. 
They took them with them when they left Egypt. They hid them away in their possessions. Well, how do you know that? Well, Amos 5 tells us that. So does Acts 7, 42. And Joshua knew. Certainly appears that he did. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Do you think you have to serve somebody? Do you? Does everybody think, yes, you have to serve somebody in this life? Whose song was that? Robert Zimmerman's, yeah. That's his real name, Robert Zimmerman. But um, Bob, Bob Dylan espoused faith, Christian faith for a while. I don't know if he does today, but he did for a period. And he had an album, Long Train Running, that was like, um, uh, that wasn't the title, but it was, had a train on the front of it that was an album of faith. But the truth is, you're going to serve someone. And you can't serve God, the true God, and false ones at the same time. Some of us think, well, I don't serve any other God. Well, probably the most common God we serve, we see best in the mirror. Our own opinions, our own ideas, our own desires, our own ambitions come ahead of God's. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, he asked? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites? Amorites were a large tribe in Canaan. He's actually talking about all of the Canaanites in that reference. In whose land you now live? So he's asking, would you prefer to have the gods from your ancestors past? Or do you want the gods these people around you are all serving in the present. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And the people replied, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. And then they repeated their reasons that Joshua had just spoken, that God rescued them from Egypt, that he preserved them in the wilderness, that he drove their enemies out of the promised land. And then 18, the latter part. So we too will serve the Lord, for he alone is God. But Joshua's not too sure. Then Joshua warned the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. Now, I think we would put it this way. Are you sure of what you're saying? Are you listening to yourself? For he is a holy and jealous God. In other words, he requires absolute loyalty. And if you're disloyal, he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he has been so good to you. Isn't that interesting? If you disobey God, if you worship idols, he'll turn away from you even though he's been so good to you. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Verse 
Joshua challenged the commitment of these people. And he warned them that even though God had been good and gracious to them, they must not assume that he would overlook their disobedience. He would punish their unfaithfulness, even removing them from the land he had given them. You know, it sort of, again, sounds like American faith, doesn't it? We think God gave us grace when we professed our faith, we were baptized, we did something years ago, and God was good to us, so we think he'll always be good to us and he'll overlook our disobedience. But I wonder if we have the wrong view of faith. We, we look at it as a single event rather than an entrance into a relationship. And the relationship deepens. And when it deepens, we become more accountable, don't we? In a marriage, when intimacy grows, so does accountability, doesn't it? Well, don't you think the same is true of your relationship with God? It's not something that happened way back, a single event. He was good to me then, he'll be good to me now. I wonder if God's saying, when will you be good to me? When will you act like we have a relationship? Not that there was an event that occurred years ago. But the people answered Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Who do you think the people are convincing? Sounds like they're trying to convince Joshua, doesn't it? They should have, instead of arguing with Joshua, they should have slowed down and thought carefully and seriously before answering. They, maybe they should have even asked for instruction, for assistance, for prayer. But they didn't. They were more keen on convincing him when he was really irrelevant to their relationship with God. How many of us in this room are more interested in convincing each other that we're Christians or someone in our family that we're Christians or some pastor on the staff that we're Christians rather than connecting with God and asking for his affirmation? You know what? I don't have any keys to the door of heaven doesn't matter to, if you can convince me. What matters is that you're connected to God and He knows you and you know Him. You know, it's interesting though, we, we, we can become so action and event oriented in our salvation. I mean, sometimes when someone is living in a way that doesn't indicate any faith, and I have asked, do you know the Lord in counseling? And very often their response was, what do you think? Angry. Isn't that right? How dare you? And I always say, how dare I? Look how you're living. And I've had parents whose kids were living as the prodigal. And if I said, talk to them about their faith. Oh, no, no, they have faith. And I said, well, you can't tell it 
by the way they're living. See, we're talking about a relationship, not an event. And the two are not the same, are they? How many of you spouses think that your marriage consists of an event that you paid a lot of money for, wore some funny clothes, gave everybody some cake, said some words? That was it. Now we're married. Not many would be satisfied there, would they? You know what that was? Marriage, unfortunately, it's not as much in our culture, but what it's intended to be is an introduction, an invitation into intimacy that builds for life. That's a better understanding of marriage, isn't it? It's not an event. It's an invitation. It's a beginning. Well, that's why... Our relationship with God is compared to a marriage. Verse 22. You are a witness to your own decision, Joshua said. You have chosen the Lord. In other words, he's saying, okay, now you're saying this. You ever said that to your child? All right, now listen to what you're saying. That's That's what Joshua's saying here. Listen to what you're saying. You are calling yourself a Christian. You are saying you're going to follow God. See, some of us parents, it's fair to ask your child that. Have you called yourself a Christian? What's the expectation and how is it lining up? That's what he's doing, isn't it? But some of us, unfortunately, are afraid to ask our own children hard questions. We don't help them. I didn't say give the answer, ask the questions. All of us would be helped to learn how to ask more questions and make fewer accusations. These people weren't forced into declaring faith for the God to God, so he said, "Okay, now you're saying this, I'm not forcing you." Yes, they replied, "We are witnesses to what we've said." In other words, I hear what I'm saying and I mean it. All right, then Joshua said, destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord your God, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. So Joshua made a covenant with the people. That day at Shechem, committing them to follow the decrees and regulations of the Lord. He recorded these things in the book of God's instructions in the the Deuteronomy, in the scroll. As a reminder of their agreement, he took a huge stone and rolled it beneath the terebinth tree beside the tabernacle of the Lord. Do you have any reminders of decisions you've made, commitments you've made to God? Might be an entry in a journal could be a picture of a spot where you prayed, something that reminds you of an important time when you cross the line into commit a commitment to God. Joshua said to all the people, this stone has heard everything the Lord said to us. It will be a witness to testify against you if you go back on your word to God. Then Joshua sent all the people away to their own homelands, their allotted lands. After this, Joshua, son of Nun, 
the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land he'd been allocated in the hill country of Ephraim. Notice this as we close. The people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him. Those who had personally experienced all that the Lord had done for Israel. These leaders had been younger people, perhaps even children, when the scouts came back and they came out of Egypt as kids probably, and now they're leaders. But see, they were people who had experienced God personally. This church is rich because there are many people in this room that have experienced God personally and aren't afraid to speak of it and know God and they can speak of God with some authority, with some familiarity. Because you know what? A church can't thrive without people who know God personally. And it's not dependent on a pastor. I mean, you know, I'm going to move to another role. But it doesn't matter because there are many of you in this room that have experienced God to the degree I have and greater, far greater. And we need you to tell what you've learned of God because faith, remember how it comes, is spoken. You speak the word of what you know to each other. And so when these people, when Joshua died off, when these leaders who had experienced God personally and saw him work and knew his power and knew his grace and knew his goodness, when they died out, Israel went into idolatry. And they began to practice immorality. That's why it's important that we know God personally. That we experience him. That we can hear his voice. In the spring I'll be teaching again on how to hear from God. Because we must hear from him personally. Okay, I'm through with Joshua. Are you ready to commit your life to worship and serve God alone? Are you? Yeah, this is not a weak commitment. Then we're going to covenant. Look at this, the memory verse as we close. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Have you chosen? Then stand as we read the rest but this is not just reading a verse this is your statement of renewing your covenant with God but as for me and my family we will serve the Lord God has heard us we witnessed our own voices we witnessed each other's voices may we be faithful Care volunteers will be here to talk to you. If you say, I'm not sure, they'll be happy to pray with you. Anoint you with oil for healing. Father, I pray that you would help us be faithful to our covenant promise to worship and serve you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for joining us for the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. This week, write down several ways God has worked in your life. Don't overthink it. Simply take a note as things come to mind. Spend time in prayer, thanking Him for His faithful love. And give your heart space to feel a deep sense of gratitude. Renew your commitment to God as you reflect on ways He's rescued and cared for you. Next week, we'll begin a two-part series titled New Life. To prepare, read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for listening and have a great week.